Luke chapter 23. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is the word of God. Amen. Please do take your seats. Can I budge over? Is that all right? Is that nasal hair cam on the front row? Maybe not. Um, I was thinking this week about how quickly internet puzzles go around the world these days. I'm going to divide the room now. Just as the world was divided and homes were divided and workplaces were split in two, I want to ask you the question about the dress. You know the dress. Was the dress uh, white with gold stripes or was it blue with black stripes? 
Let's move on. What about the one that was out a month or so ago? There was a mathematical equation made up of matchsticks. And they said, just move one matchstick and make it into a different equation that works. Then there was one this week. I want you to imagine uh, three brown boxes with a picture of a black car on the outside of each box. Underneath each box, there is a statement. It went like this. 36% of you will get this right. Maybe less. Box one, the car is in this box. Box two, the car is not in this box. Box three, the car is not in box one. Let's move on. Whatever the puzzle is, you can look it up online, not in the sermon. Um, whatever the puzzle is, they make sure that all the information that you need to solve the puzzle is in front of you, whether it's colours or numbers or, or pictures. But people always come to different conclusions. That's the fun of those brain teasers. That's why they go viral. That's why they divide homes and office spaces and whatnot. And here we are, we've been on a long journey for a year. Those of you that are just coming this morning, welcome. Really good to see you. But we've been on a journey through Luke's Gospel. We're really very close to the end now. And Luke's been presenting in his Gospel the account of Jesus' life. And here we have in this passage that we looked at last week, we look again this morning, the final events of Jesus' earthly existence. And there's all the information you need, says Jesus, and says Luke, to, to know who I am. But, but some people look at this evidence and they come to very, very different conclusions, just like a brain teaser, just like a magic eye puzzle. I mean, it's there in the passage, verse 34. Let's have a look at it together. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, they're looking right at me. And they can't see what we're doing. Father, they don't understand our plan of salvation. They don't understand why I'm hanging on the cross for the sins of the world. Father, looking right at me. Look at verse 35. The people stood there. They're watching. They're just looking on, as someone would say, as a cow looks at a new gate. They're looking at the information, but they can't work out what's going on. And this is the most important day in all of human history says Luke and the other gospel writers. And then look at who's there. You've got religious leaders. You've got political people. You've got insiders. You've got outsiders. You've got people who are important in society, people who are marginalised in society. And all these people are looking on at the, the gravest, most important day of all of human history that marks our calendars. But some people understand and some people don't. Some people are just like a cow looking at a gate. They don't understand what's happening. But some people do. And I want us to look first of all, point number one, who is it that gets Jesus? All these people are looking at Jesus. They don't understand why he's there, what he's doing, why he's hanging on the cross for the sins of the world. But there are four groups of people who do. Let's look at them. First person is a moral outsider. Look at verse 40. There are two thieves hanging on the crosses either side of Jesus Christ, two criminals. Other Gospels have them as thieves. We need to think just a minute, if these people had just stolen stuff, if they were just into thievery, if they were simply robbers, they would not be hanging on the cross. They must have done more than that. The uh, 
punishment does not equal the crime if it's simply stealing stuff, if they were just robbing people. They must have done more. In all probability, therefore, before they stole stuff, they killed someone. Or in the act of stealing something from someone, they killed the person they wanted to steal it from. That's what Luke is telling us. That's why they're hanging on those crosses next to Jesus. So you have, in verse 40, a very bad man. Somebody that's killed at least one person, but someone who the other gospel writers call a thief, and Luke calls a criminal. But look at what he says. He says, verse 40, Don't you fear God. He's innocent, we're guilty. But don't you fear God. Here's the crowd looking on. They don't understand who Jesus is, what he's doing. But there's a man who's hanging on the cross, and he does. Look at the second person, verse 47. The first person's a moral outsider. The second person is at least unclean. Verse 47, the second person who does understand, who gets what Jesus is doing, who understands who he is, is a centurion. Verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. He's a racial outsider. He's not a moral outsider, but he's unclean. He's not a Jew, he would be a Gentile. But Luke is saying, as he looks on to Jesus, he praises God. That phrase, praising God, is used six times in Luke's Gospel. You can find it a few examples. Verse 17, when Jesus heals a leper... The response is people praise God for his power. Chapter 18, when Bartimaeus receives back his sight, he cries out to Jesus, Father, or Jesus, have mercy upon me. He praises God. And Luke is saying, when that phrase is used, it's because people perceive, not just looking at information, they perceive something about the salvation of God. And here's a centurion, he's looking on, not just at information, not just as a person who's bloodied and bruised and battered. He sees in Jesus God's salvation plan, hanging on a cross outside a city wall. This centurion could say, oh, what a shame. Don't you know he was innocent? The political guys, they all thought he was innocent. Pilate, Herod, they wanted to wash their hands of him. It was the religious people who colluded who got him there. What a shame. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. He says, surely he was the Son of God. And he praises God. It's Luke's way of saying he got it. He got who Jesus was and is. So we've had a, a moral outsider, a really bad man who says, have mercy on me. We've had a, an outsider, another outsider, a, a, a Roman soldier who looks on at Jesus and says, Surely he's the son of God. And now thirdly, well actually it's a group. Look at the third group. It's there in verses 55 to 56. Let's read it. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes for after the Sabbath day. Jesus, like us in Luke's Gospel, has been on a really, really long journey, not just from Epsom Primary to Stamford Green. He's journeyed from the throne room of heaven to earth, being confined to the tiny womb of a mother. He's grown from a uh, sperm and a cell through to a boy and then to a man. He's died for the sins of the world in Jerusalem. He's been on this really long journey. And you would think that all the people who followed him would still be with him. But as you look around the cross, who's there? There's the religious authorities. 
There's some Roman soldiers. But all the people that have journeyed with Jesus, where are they? I mean, where are the disciples? They must be there. You'll look in vain. What about Peter? Peter said, I would never leave you. I'd do anything. People will have to prize me off you, Jesus. I'm your guy. Peter's not there. What about Judas? He was really close. Well, he actually betrayed Jesus. Who is it that Luke wants us to pay special attention to and that he's very fond of all through his gospel? It's women. It's only the women who are left. And Luke, throughout the gospel, includes 13 women that no other gospel writer includes. Just to say, women, they are not morally outside of the kingdom of God. They're not uh, religiously outside of the kingdom of God, but they sure are socially. Women couldn't vote. Women would not have been in positions of political power or influence. They wouldn't have had a voice. They were really downtrodden in the first century. And here is Luke saying, this is the gospel according to me, and it's for absolutely everybody. It's for religious outsiders. It's for moral outsiders. It's for people who are marginalised. It's not for the haves, it's for the have-nots. And who are the people who see who Jesus is? It's a Roman centurion. It's someone hanging on a cross next to him. And it's a bucket load of women who follow Jesus when all the people who said, we'll never let you down, they're nowhere to be seen. But the women are. And here's Luke saying, these are the people who get the gospel. But there's a fourth group. So you may be thinking, hang on, we've been through Luke for a long time. I can't wait to get to a Christmas series in Emmanuel Epsom. So can I, believe you me. You just think you get it. Luke is saying the gospel is for outsiders. The insiders, they never get the gospel. The rich, they never get the gospel. Okay, Zacchaeus, that's one in Luke 19. But look at the fourth person who gets who Jesus is. His name is Joseph, verse 50. Luke has said that tax collectors... They'll get the gospel. Lepers, they'll get the gospel. Marginalised, they'll get the gospel. But the rich will never get it. The respectable will never get it. The powerful will never get it. Luke, I understand what you're teaching me. But then you get to verse 50. And verse 50, we meet Joseph of Arimathea. He's a member of the council. He's a religious person. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's a, a wealthy man. He's a well-to-do man. He's a man of power. He's a man of influence. He's a man of prestige. Jesus won't bring him in because it doesn't fit the scheme, does it, that Luke has been teaching us. But then he does. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. And he was looking for the kingdom of God, verse 51. It's he who, verse 52, asked Pilate for the body. It's he, verse 53, and so on, who cares for Jesus because he loves him and he wants to worship him. What is Luke teaching us? The outsiders, not the insiders, get in. The poor, not the rich. The, uh, the humble, not the proud. And then this one just breaks all the expectations we have. Because Luke wants to say there's one word. It's grace. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. You can be a very wealthy person here this morning. You need to receive God's grace you can be someone without two pennies to rub together. It's a matter of God's grace. You speak to the people next to you who you don't know. And if they're Christians, they will tell you, it's because God has been merciful to me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the beds I've slept in. You don't know the thoughts I've had. You don't know the mistakes I've made. But God's grace has made Jesus real to me. It's not a matter of information and data. It's God's mercy and his grace 
that makes Jesus real to somebody. It's not a problem to be solved. It's God revealing his son to us. And he's done it to four groups of people in Luke chapter 23. Christians, you see, are not people who are confident in their righteousness. I'm not confident in my moral performance. I'm not confident in the amount of time I give to Jesus. You can spot a Christian because they're people who have experienced the grace of God, but Christians who are honest, who don't want to uh, keep wearing the mask. Christians always limp. That's a sign of someone that's met the Lord Jesus Christ. They limp. They're not confident in themselves, but they're very confident in God's grace. These are people who have got Jesus, but how? If that's four people or four groups of people who who come to Jesus because of his grace, who are drawn by God to his son, how does that happen? Lou wants to tell us that as well. And Dave touched on this really helpfully last week. You need to look at the two thieves. Look at these two thieves hanging either side of Jesus, verses 39 to 43. One of them is having a life-changing encounter with Jesus right at the end of his earthly life, and one of them is not. There are three things that Luke wants us to see. Four groups of people, three things about how we get to know Jesus personally. Here they are. First of all, you need to go against the flow. You need to go against the flow. Look at verse 35. The rulers are laughing at Jesus. They're sneering at him. Verse 36, the soldiers mocking Jesus. They're making fun of him. Verse 39, the first criminal, the first thief. What's he doing? He's hurling insults at Jesus. You, the Christ, are you kidding me? If you, the Christ, save me and save yourself. If you're going to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus, you need to be prepared like the second criminal, to go against the flow. Look at the second thief. What does he do? He exposes the second thing that you need to do. You need to recognize what really motivates you. You need to swim against the flow, swim against the tide. The second thing, if you want to have a personal encounter with Jesus, is to recognize what motivates you. What do I mean by that? Look at the contrast of these two thieves, 39 to 43. The first thief comes and says to Jesus, if you're the Christ, get me out of here. I'm not a celebrity, but get me out of here. My death marks are in my hands and feet. But if you are who you say you are, do some magic, call down a bunch of angels and save yourself and save me. Because if you don't save yourself and save me, no one's going to get saved. And this man is demonstrating how many of us And certainly a large proportion of the world relate to God. This man is modelling a lifestyle and a thought process that you and I can have. And I've had many a time, even as a Christian. This is how it goes. God, if you are there, I'm in trouble. Please, will you help me? Please, will you save me from this situation because I can't save myself? I've just received this news from the doctor. And if you're there, save me from this. If you're there, help my son, help my daughter. If you're there, provide for me right now in this situation. And if you don't provide and meet my needs, then you're not there. QED. Here's the first criminal and he's saying, I have a need. You can meet that need. Save me. There's a means and there's an end. 
But if you are to become a Christian, you need to be able to swim against the flow, and that's hard. What may be even harder is to being honest about what truly motivates you. We have a means and we have an end. For the first criminal, Jesus is the means to get him off that cross, to save him, to get to the end. Freedom, liberty. But the second criminal, look at what he says. The second criminal says, I want to be with you even if you don't get me out of this trouble. You're not a means to an end. The second criminal says, you're my end in itself. Even if you don't save me on this, from this cross, even if you don't provide a way of liberating me, of delivering me, I want to be with you. And Jesus responds in a remarkable way. Verses 41 to 43. He says, you'll be with me today. I'm not just going to remember you. You're going to be with me. You need to be honest and say, this is what truly motivates me. This is what I'm living for. It can be success. It can be career. It can be health. It can be your figure. It can be a whole bunch of things. And you can just treat God as a means to fulfill that end. And if that's you, like it's been me for so much of my life, we're just like the first criminal. But one of the signs that you're maturing in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, one of the things that has to happen when you become a Christian, is that you don't keep on using God as a means to an end. He's not a genie that you rub when you want him. He's the end that you're made for. He's the end that you'll find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in. He's the only person who can save you from your sins and draw you to himself. He's the one you're made for. That means you've got to swim against the flow. That means you've got to be honest about what motivates you. Thirdly, really quickly, you need to ask for God's mercy. Verses 41 to 43. Here's the second thief. What does he say, the second criminal? He says, I deserve to be cast out. This guy's innocent, but I'm not, and neither are you, to the other criminal. I deserve to be cast out. But Jesus, will you take me in? It's a paraphrase of what he's saying. I deserve this. I don't deserve to be free. I deserve to be punished. But Jesus, will you free me anyway? Will you have mercy on me? Now how can he do that? How can Jesus Christ do that? That's the third point. Why we can get Jesus. We've looked at people who do. We've looked at what it means to become a Christian. And then how can Jesus, or rather why, can Jesus say, I'm going to be with you in paradise? There are two things here. Kind of a lot of points today. Why is Jesus able to do this? Here are two, then I'll be quiet. Look at the first reason. It's there in verse 44. Two words, darkness and withness. It's the best I could do. Darkness and withness. Here's darkness. Two reasons why we can get with Jesus. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun has stopped shining. I find that really hard to imagine. It's kind of like, you know, you turn the lights out, but you know that you can turn them on again, and even you're a bit scared, you just whack them on. One of our kids really hates the dark at the minute. So is Luke just being dramatic? Is he is this in a kind of thespian coming out? Let's whack some darkness in here so it looks more uh, deliberate and alarming. No. It's a really deliberate and intentional choice of words. It has a huge amount of freight behind it in terms of the Bible. What do I mean? 
Every place in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, when there is a, a day that is described, a day of justice, a day of the Lord, a day when God's justice will be poured out and all the evil in the world will be dispelled, all those enemies of God will be dealt with, God's justice, his settled anger against all that's wrong in the world will be satisfied perfectly and completely. Every single time the day of the Lord, the day of uh, justice is spoken about, there's always darkness. Joel 2 verse 31, on the day of vengeance, the day of justice, the sun will be turned to darkness. Amos 8, 9, on the day of the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon to darken the whole earth. You can look up Zephaniah 1 as well. What's going on? What's all this darkness stuff? Luke is saying this. As Jesus is dying for the sins of the world on the cross, there is a day of judgment that's happening before the day of judgment. Jesus is doing something. Jesus is receiving the judgment of God for the sins of the world in the middle of history before the ultimate day of justice and judgment. That's why it's dark. It's not a little authorial kind of uh, display of flair. Luke is saying, do you not see what's going on here? Here we have Jesus that I've written 22 chapters about so far. You've seen who he is. He's the son of God. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-loving. And here he is, obediently, being nailed to the cross for the sins of the world. And he is receiving the full weight of the judgment of God for your sins and my sins. And for every sin that's ever been committed, for every act of rebellion and treason that's ever happened, it's all being poured out on Jesus Christ. And he is obediently hanging there for the sins of the world. Why can Jesus say to this uh, person that deserves to be there, verse 43, who cries out for his mercy, why can Jesus say, today you'll be with me in paradise? Because there's a day of justice and judgment in the middle of history that Jesus is receiving, and it's symbolic of the ultimate day of justice and judgment that will happen when Jesus returns for a second time. Here is Jesus in the middle of history demolishing evil, ridding the world of sin for eternity. Why? Because he's being demolished. Because he's receiving the full weight of God's wrath. And the ultimate choice we face, friends, is either we accept Jesus taking our place or we will receive the justice and judgment of God upon ourselves. He saved others, but he won't save himself, cries out the first criminal. And here's the deep irony in those words. Because Jesus Christ didn't save himself, he can save other people. It's darkness, but this is the best I could do. The second word is withness. Withness. How can Jesus say to the second criminal... Or the second criminal would say to Jesus, rather, I deserve to be cast out, but please will you take me in? How can Jesus Christ say, today you'll be with me in paradise? He just cries out and says, will you remember me? And Jesus says, I'll do better than that, you're going to be with me. Today you're going to be with me. All the commentators say of verse 43, that's talking about heaven. Really hard verse to understand, but they say clearly it's Jesus saying to the person that's hanging next to him on the cross, You're going to be with me in heaven today. 
But they also say a second thing that I want us to think about. This is not just talking about heaven. It's also talking about being with Jesus, with Jesus personally. If you look at the New Testament, we've thought about the Old. If you look at the New Testament, there is a theme. There is a, a huge kind of weight of teaching, like a big train that says things like, there's a guy called Paul who wrote most of it, and he said this, we died with Jesus, but we were also raised with Jesus. And you're thinking, what's all that about? Romans chapter 6 says this, we've been united with him in his death. Don't know what that means. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, Paul says, God has raised us up with Jesus and has seated us with him in the realms of heaven. And you're thinking, oh, you've made a typo there because you should say that we will be raised in the future. Something in the future is going to happen. Paul, you've said that we've been raised with Jesus in the past and, and that's impossible. Paul did not make a typo. He's teaching a profound truth that's here hidden, as it were, in verse 43. That Christians are in Jesus. What does that mean? Paul says this. I'm glad you're sat down. You may fall over. Paul is saying, the minute you believe in Jesus Christ, every single thing that Jesus has done is true of you as God looks upon you. Every single thing that Jesus Christ has done in his obedient life and his sufficient death, the fact that he's been resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father on high, everything that Jesus has done the minute you become a Christian is true of you. That is not just a clean slate. That's a hundred billion pounds in your bank balance. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. You are as free from the penalty of sin today that you will be in any day in the future because Jesus has paid for it in the past on the cross. When Paul says that you are with him, you're with him in his death, you're with him in his resurrection, you're seated with him in his ascension, the minute you believe in Jesus Christ, God sees you as he looks upon Jesus in him. And all of that is in verse 43. It's not just about heaven. It's the fact that we are united with Christ. We are in Jesus. So let me ask you a question about a brain teaser. Luke has deliberately and carefully written down an ordered account of the life and work of Jesus Christ. He's written a very careful account on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All the information is there. Here's the question. Have you responded to Jesus in light of that information? Are you like those people that can see or is it not clear? If it's not clear, please come and see me. Please come and see Daniel at the end of the service. We'd love to spend some time thinking about this with you and praying with you. Christian friend, you'll say, oh yeah, but I've heard this all before and I know that Jesus died for my sins. And Let's just spend a minute thinking about that again. If you think you know this to be true, if you think you know what this means, can I humbly say to you, no, you don't. I don't think you do. Because Paul was writing to a church in Colossae, and they were Christians, and they knew what this meant, and they had experienced God's grace. And Paul starts to write to them in chapter 3 of Colossians, and he said this, look at your pride, 
Look at the fact that you gossip, you struggle with how you use your words. Look at your hurt feelings that you feel. Look at the way you backbite in church. Look at your unhappiness and sad faces. Look at all the things that are wrong with you. You understand the gospel, you know that this is true. You know that Jesus died for you. But he says to Christians what he would say to us this morning, set your mind on things that are above. You've forgotten this. Set your mind where Christ, who is your life, is. Set your mind on your life, which was hidden in Christ, above. What's he talking about? Why is he saying set your mind on something? Think about something. Let something consume you. Don't get distracted away from something. Because he knows people. (laughs) He knows me and he knows you. Why do you want to be in control of your life so badly? Why, uh, Why do you need approval? that you're so consumed with how you look and what you wear, why are you so struggling with hurt in the past? Because you've not been loved as you should have done or treated as you would have liked by your parents. Why do you long to have just a bit more power? I'd love to be someone of power and influence so when I spoke, people listened, that I could influence people. If you really knew this, you wouldn't struggle with those things. If you knew how loved you were, if you knew how valued you are, if you knew this, it would melt your heart. It would control the way you think. It would motivate you in new ways. You'd use your energies and your resources in new creative ways for the gospel. Because if you get this, if Jesus is real to you, the first thing you want after thanking God is is for this to be shared with other people. Why am I so concerned about what other people think of me that I don't want to tell them about Jesus because this penny hasn't really dropped in my heart and life? So I want this to be real for me as well. Charles Spurgeon, an old preacher, put it this way. He looked down at the people he was dying for, some cringing like cowards, some were snarling like dogs, all clueless and blind to what he was doing. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He just stayed. Jesus could have left, but he didn't. And friends, to the degree that your heart is melted by that truth, what he's done for you, who you are in him, If you look at the cross again, and if this penny drops and Jesus becomes real to you, it will change you. Let's pray. Father, would you do something that we cannot? Would you send your Holy Spirit in our hearts through the ministry of this message, through Christian friends and days to come? Would you please be at work in each one of our hearts, each according to our needs, to fire us up if we're too comfortable, please, would you afflict us? If we are finding things really hard because we're afflicted and hard-pressed, would you please comfort us? But I pray for each one of us, not knowing where each one of our hearts is at, please, please, would you make Jesus real to us this morning? Amen.